welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the senior content director here at Word on Fire. Today, we have one of our beloved kids Q&A episodes. We're going to hear from kids all over the world. They got great questions about God, animals, Adam and Eve, and a whole lot more. But before we get there, Bishop Barron, welcome. Good to be here with you. Hey, Brandon. Always good to see you. How are your kids doing? We're doing good, and they have <laughs> as many questions as these wonderful kids do. I bet, yeah. <laughs> I, as we were going through them, I was recognizing, oh, yep, my kid has asked that question, and that one, and that right. one, and that one. They seem, yeah. I think we've remarked on this before, Bishop, they have an endless appetite for questions about the big things. They don't ask yep. about these really subtle theological questions. They want to know about God, meaning, existence, heaven, hell, all the big questions, right? It, I always find that intriguing. They're, you're right. They're expressed in, you might say, a, you know, a simple way, but the ideas behind the questions, what they're getting at, are, are usually quite profound. And that reminds me of Aquinas, who said that. You know, that um, the really serious questions in theology are always the simple ones. When you start you know, going off with seven-syllable words and using a lot of academic jargon, often you're just doing trivia. But it's the simple ones that are the deepest ones. Before we get to the questions, I did want to talk with you briefly about a couple of exciting announcements from Word on Fire. So listeners of this podcast on the last episode would have heard about this new book we just published. It's by Dr. Holly Ordway, one of the fellows of our Word on Fire Institute, titled Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. And again, the previous episode was the audio of an interview I did with Holly about the book. That's announcement number one, but announcement number two, which is tied to it, is this book is inaugurating our new Word on Fire academic line of books. And I I thought maybe I wanted to get your thoughts on both of these exciting bits of news. Yeah, the book is uh, beautiful looking, first of all, and I think it's got a very interesting uh, content. Tolkien's a key player for a lot of us at Word on Fire for you know, different reasons. Someone that used beauty and imagination in evangelization, someone that was in the circle with C.S. Lewis and those who used more intellectual approaches, though Lewis, of course, too, famously used imaginative approaches. So there's a lot of that kind of inkling spirit, I think, in uh, Word on Fire. But also the academic line, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. We want to evangelize the culture, and that means at all kinds of different levels. That means in a more popular way, even today, you know, with with little kids. But we also want to evangelize uh, the high culture, and that means taking advantage of of the academic conversation and entering into it. So I'm very pleased about that. We're happy to, you know, evangelize any way we can in all the different expressions of the culture. Uh, Cardinal George always felt very strongly about that, and so, you know, I'm continuing his spirit there. We have a, a long pipeline of academic books that are in the queue for the next few years. So look forward to many more titles in this new Word on Fire academic line, including some titles by Bishop Barron himself. Okay, Bishop, let's dive in. Um, okay. We've got a bunch of great questions. The first one's from Sophia. She is four years old, and like her name, she's asking a very wise question about <laughs> God's size. Here's her question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Sophia. I'm four years old. My, and my question is, is God bigger than an elephant? God bless. <laughs> Bye-bye. Uh, is God bigger than an elephant? I think that was the, the question. Well, Sophia, think about this now. Um, let's say you've got a, a dog, and then you've got a horse, and you've got an elephant, right? You've got sort of small, medium, large. You've got big, bigger, biggest. So that's the way we look at the world. 
Now, God isn't like we got a dog, a horse, an elephant. Oh, and then there's God. He's like the biggest thing of all. Don't think of it that way, because that puts God just like as one thing among many, like he's a, he's a creature within the world. Rather, God is the creator of all things, right? So God creates the dog, the horse, the elephant, everything else that exists. And of course, therefore, in that sense, God is bigger, God is greater than anything that he makes. Uh, but don't think of him as just one more big thing wandering around, you know? So he's greater than any creature because he, he gives rise to all creatures. That's the way I'd, I'd approach that interesting, uh, wise question that you raise. Do your right, kids have that from, one, Brandon? Do your kids raise that one about oh, God's size? Oh, of course, size of and, course. Yeah, <laughs> why, questions about God's eyesight, questions about what God can hear, what God can know. Is, yeah. is God bigger or smaller than this or that? It's the trickiest thing as a parent when it comes to teaching kids about God is moving from that physicalist conception of God as like the maximally great being to right. something more sophisticated. That's hard to well, do for parents. You know what's interesting? I'm thinking of, of the psalm, the famous line, can the one who made the eye himself not see? So God doesn't have eyes. So like all these different creatures have eyes, and some have better eyes and, than others, and so God must have the best eyes of them all. No, it's rather God is the creator of all things that have eyes. And can the one who made the eye himself not see? Well, of course not. So God sees in an even more powerful way. So think of like our vision right now. I can see you and things that are kind of in my peripheral vision. That's it. That's all I can see. And I can see in this very narrow range of, of uh, light and so on. God, who makes all things, sees everything, even though God doesn't have eyes. Or you could say, because he doesn't have eyes. You know, his vision isn't restricted to these little organs that we have. All right. Thanks, Sophia. Next, we hear from Paul. He is six years old, and he's got a question about God's creation. Here's Paul. Hmm. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Paul. I live in Alabama, and I am six years old. My question is, why did God make bad germs? Thank you. Yeah, I think he's saying, why did God make bad germs, right? Like, like viruses. And so right now, we're all dealing with that. We have this coronavirus as we tape this show, and we wonder, well, why would God have done this? Here's one way maybe to look at it. Think of um, a hungry lion, right? And he's out there on the plains in Africa, and suddenly he sees this antelope, and he says, if he could, if he could pray, that lion would say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for sending me this antelope so I can eat. Now, the antelope sees the lion, and, and if he could pray, he'd say, oh, God, please save me from that lion. Now, here's my point, is that sometimes what we call good and evil depends on your perspective. So like a germ, let's say, or a virus that's bad for us, it does bad things to our bodies, but in itself, it's not bad, and it might help other parts of God's creation. So like the lion-antelope thing, from the antelope's perspective, that lion is really bad, and you might say, why did God make this terrible thing? But the lion's not bad in himself. And, and the lion thanks God for sending the antelope. So maybe think of it that way, that some things that we call bad aren't, aren't really bad in themselves. They might be bad for us, but God is interested in more than just us. He's interested in his whole creation. All right, next we got a question from 
a young boy named Nathan. Uh, I love his question a lot, first because he's from Canada and he's got a great Canadian accent, but also um, when he submitted the question, he gave his last name. I don't think he, he uh, gives his last name in the audio, but his last name is Aquino. And it calls to mind the the land of Thomas Aquinas, where he's of from. And his question is very, very Thomistic. So Good. here's Nathan's question. <laughs> Terrific. I'm from Canada. My name is Nathan. And my question is, how did God come to exist? <laughs> Good. That is a very Thomas Aquinas type question. You know, here's the, the quick answer. Your question's a really good one because as we look around our world, right, everything comes to be. You came to be, I came to be. I say, hey, when was your birthday? Well, that's, you know, I, I came into the world. These, I'm looking at cameras right now around me and lights. Well, they came to be. At one time, they didn't exist, and then they came into being. Think of all the birds and animals, you know, they're moving around outside right now. They all came to be. Even the mountains. There are mountains not far from where I'm sitting right now, beautiful mountains. Well, even though it was a long time ago, they came to be. In fact, you know, it's funny, Brandon. On the way over, I, I was with Father Steve, and, and he noticed this giant boulder, like way beyond what you'd ever bring to the place. You know, it's like this... And he said, gosh, I wonder how long that's been there. You know, did that happen in a, in a rock slide? Who knows? Who knows? Hundreds, thousands of years ago? But, but even that rock came to be, right, at some point. Okay. So that's why it's natural to say, well, okay, if everything came to be, how about God? Well, the point is, God didn't come to be. God is. God always was. God always will be. He's not like things in the world. That's what makes God unique. That's what makes God God, is that he doesn't come into being the way things do. Because if he did, what? We'd have to look for what caused him, right? Well, then, hey, whatever that was, that must be even greater than God, right? So God is. That's why it's interesting, Brandon, that the Bible uses a lot of images for God, right? Well, one of them is a rock, God is a rock. Well, see, why would you reach for that? Because, gosh, of all the things in our experience, that looks like it's been there forever. You know? Even though it did come into being, but, but of all the things, the rock looks really permanent. And so the, the biblical authors would say, God's like that. He's like a rock. You know, he's always been there. But that's the point. And so this little acquaintance asking the question, that's a very penetrating and important question. God didn't come into being. He simply is. Bishop, it sometimes bothers me when I talk with atheist friends or I'm reading atheist writers and they think that the question, well, where did God come from? If God made everything, what made God? is kind of like the ultimate gotcha, as if Christians have never considered that yeah. question before. But, you know, here we have little Nathan Aquino, Nathan Aquinas, you know, asking this question as a as a young kid. And I just hope that all the other parents and kids recognize that these are really good questions, but they're questions that have been thought and wrestled with and in many cases answered centuries ago. They're not sort of new, surprising no. things. No, the objection that you bring up, and you do hear it in the atheist circles, is entirely sophomoric. I mean, it might strike people as clever, but not at all. Uh, as though Aquinas is saying, you know, everything had a cause. Well, therefore, what's God's cause? Well, no, the principle is not everything had a cause. The principle is contingent things have causes, or things that come into being have causes. But the conclusion of the argument is that there's some reality which didn't come into being, that didn't have a cause, whose very nature is to be. So that objection, you're right, is uh, sophomoric. 
All right, let's turn to Lacey. She is just three years old, probably our youngest caller today. Wow, She's from three. Wisconsin. And uh, we talked earlier about God's eyesight, and that's exactly what she's asking about here. So here's her question. Um, hi, my name is my name is Lacey. I'm three years old, and I'm from Wisconsin. And my question is, how can we see God from up in heaven when we can't see Him? <laughs> I think it's what. How can God see us if we can't see Him? Right. That's a cool question. Um. Let me try this way, maybe. You know how if there are adults and there are kids in the same room, let's say there's like a party going on, you have adults having their conversation and there's kids having the conversation. What an adult can do is, is bend down, maybe even like literally bend down to the level of, of a child and can enter into the child's conversation, right? The adult could say, hey, what are you doing? Hey, are you going to school? What grade are you in? And, and hey, are you playing baseball? And, and the adult can get into the child's conversation. But what a child could never do, let's say a three or four or five-year-old child, he could never step up into an adult conversation and, and just understand what the adults are talking about and ask all the right questions. And No, the, the child is just incapable of that, though the higher reality, the adult can lower herself to the child's level. Well, think of it that way now with God. Can God see us and relate to us and enter into our world? Yeah, of course he can, because God, God creates all reality. So right now, God knows everything going on. He knows what we're doing right now. We're in the presence of God right now. But can we jump up and understand and see God? No, no, because we're, we're like little children. We can't begin to understand what's in God's mind. He can move into our world but we can't just move up into his world, which is why God always remains mysterious. And not just because, well, eventually I'll figure him out. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I don't get him right now, but boy, give me five years of thinking, I'll figure him out. No, no, God is, is by his very nature mysterious. Because in this life anyway, we can't move up into God's um, level, but he can move down to our level. All right, next up, we have a question that has perennially troubled parents probably for centuries, and it mm. involves the eternal destiny of animals. So if you're, any, oh. if you're a parent and you've had a dead goldfish or a dead gerbil in your house, or you know, for our case, we live on this homestead, a dead goat or a dead pig or a dead chicken, <laughs> kids naturally want to ask, well, what happens next to that animal? Are they gone forever? Will I see them again? And that's the question that eight-year-old Sam is wrestling with here, Bishop. So on behalf of parents everywhere, we're hoping you can give us a good answer for this one. Here's, here's the question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Sam from Egan, Minnesota, and I'm eight years old. My question is, do you think animals go to heaven? Thank you. Yeah, good. And you're right, Brandon. Uh, the tradition has thought about this for a long time. And to be honest, you get different answers, I think, as you look at it. Let, let me just try something, because it's, 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 a, it's a very subtle question. It's a hard question to answer, I think. If by heaven we mean, as the catechism lays out, heaven is the place where angels and saints see the very face of God, they, they see God as he is, and they worship God for all eternity. If that's heaven, well then, no, animals aren't in heaven because animals don't have minds or wills capable of that kind of perception and activity. 
I, I'm talking a little bit above kids here, I, I understand, but if that's how you define heaven, I'd say, no, animals aren't in heaven. However, I'd say this, we don't think of heaven as simply a spiritual place where our souls simply go. No, God wants to make a new heavens and a new earth. We, we long to be united again with our bodies. So in the very last um, episode of things, our bodies are involved. And if our bodies are involved, it seems to me something like a new earth is involved in, in what we call heaven. Well, I don't see, even though they're not going to be participating in the vision of God the way we will, I don't see any reason why God couldn't populate that heavenly space with animals who are our companions and friends as they are in, in this life. So I, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a both and, I think. Uh, I, I don't want to just say, no, no animals in heaven, although there's something right in saying that. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to say, sure, animals are just like us and they'll experience God the same way we do. No, that's not true. But might they be still with us in this wonderful place of total fulfillment? Yeah. Here's an argument, by the way. I remember first reading this in William F. Buckley. Uh, he raised this when he was a young kid to his Jesuit professor. And the professor said, well, if heaven's a place of ultimate happiness, and you couldn't imagine being ultimately happy without your dog, then your dog will be in heaven. <laughs> and Buckley, I remember, this is all the, as an older man, he said, I still don't see any flaw in that logic. <laughs> so I think there's something to be said for it. I like that approach. That's exactly what I've said to our kids, is Paul says, you know, heaven has been prepared as a place that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's, it's better than anything you can imagine. It's the place of ultimate happiness. And so I find that when kids ask the question, will my goldfish, will my gerbil yeah. go to heaven? What they're really asking is, am I going to be happy in heaven if that goldfish or that gerbil's not there? And so yeah. turning the question to happiness is probably the best way to, to get around yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, next up we get to hear from Eloise. She's seven years old. She lives in the Dallas area, maybe a future member of the Word on Fire Institute, Eloise, yeah. which is also based in Dallas. Um, she's got a good question about evil and suffering. Here it is. Hi, I'm Eloise and I'm seven years old. I'm from Dallas and, I, and my question is, why do bad things happen? Why do b bad things happen? Why do happen? bad things happen? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, that's the question. That's the great question. That's the only finally serious objection to the claim that God exists. I mean, so that's an ancient, ancient problem. And I think every human being at some point wrestles with that. Here's a, I'm going to give you this, the quick answer first. The quick answer is God allows evil to bring about some greater good. And so I'd ask you to think of times in your own life when that's been true. When something bad happened, but because of it, and only because of it, something really good also happened that wouldn't have happened otherwise. You see what I'm saying? Something bad that in the immediacy you said, that's terrible, I, I hate this, this is terrible suffering. But because of it, something really good happened. Um, think of someone maybe a young child going through surgery. And surgery, I mean, it's a bad thing. Uh, cutting into your body and taking something out or, you know, and, and after surgery, people are in terrible pain. And 
okay, that's bad, you know. But because of it, you're able to thrive and able to be healthy, you know. Um, think of even something you really wanted and it didn't happen, but because of that, you turned to something else that turned out to be so much better, you know. So that's the principle that God allows certain bad things to happen to bring about a greater good. And maybe we can't see it right away, but we trust in it. I like the way Eloise phrased that question, which is, is usually um, different than how most other kids phrased it. She said, why do bad things happen? And not, why does God make bad things? Or right. why does God cause bad things? And it gets at the distinction you were just describing, Bishop. Right. Right, God doesn't cause evil. That would make God evil. That means he'd be like an evil person who's causing bad things. God doesn't cause them. He, we say, permits them. The way a good parent, you know, you're, Brandon, you know about that, that you permit certain things that your kids probably see as evil to allow a greater good. Um, what if a parent gave their kids everything they wanted at every minute? How happy would they be in the long run? They'd be really unhappy, right? Hey, I want my ice cream cone right now. Look, it's five. We're going to eat dinner in an hour. No, no, I want it right now, right now, right now. And you indulged every single thing that your child wanted. They'd be very unhappy. You have to allow for things that they're going to perceive as bad to bring about a greater good. Or, you know, I, I want to stay awake all night. I don't want to go to bed. Okay, fine. Stay awake all night. And then how will you be the next day, et cetera, you know? So we know that from our ordinary experience. Next up, we turn to Marie, who is eight years old and is also in Texas, and she has another question about God's knowledge. Here it is. Hi, my name is Marie, and I am eight years old from Texas. My question is, if God made everything and knows everything, then does he put the thoughts in my head, or did I make the thoughts? Thank you, Marie. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, maybe I'd say this. Um, can God influence us and move us by giving us uh, certain thoughts or suggestions? Yeah, I think so. It's mysterious, isn't it? I wonder if you, you sense that even now in your life. It's mysterious where thoughts come from. You know, you're going through your day and you're doing something, and you're, but then suddenly a, a thought occurs to you, and, and you think, well, where did that come from? How come I suddenly thought about that? Can God influence us through our thoughts? Yeah, I think so. Now, we have to act on our own. We, we freely decide what to do. God isn't treating us like puppets. But God, I think, can um, move us and suggest things to us in our thoughts. And that's you know, something to be aware of as you go through your day. Like, okay, what, what is God asking me to do? What's God pushing me to do, maybe? Uh, when, when you get a thought, for example, you know, I should really be nicer to that person, or, you know, that, she seems kind of lonely over that. I should, I should go talk to her. Where does that come from, that thought? Well, I, I'd say ultimately, yeah, that comes from God, that thought. Uh, but then God wants us, you know, to cooperate with his suggestion. Something like that, I'd say. All right, I think we got time for maybe one more question. This one okay. comes from Rachel. She is in Ohio, and she's asking a question that I must say I've never heard before or considered. Um, it's uh, okay. about Adam and Eve, the Ten Commandments, and Moses. Here's your question. Oh, okay. Hello, I am Rachel. I live in Lebanon, Ohio, and my question is, why did um, 
God not give the Ten Commandments to Adam and Eve and gave them to Moses? Ah, okay. That's a cool question. You know who asked a question like that a long time ago was a hero of mine called St. Irenaeus. He lived in the second century, long, long time ago. He said this, if you look in the Bible, you see a kind of steady education of Israel. So God is sort of moving his, his holy people along the way a parent moves his kids through life. So a parent might not give to a little tiny kid all kinds of rules and regulations because he wouldn't even really understand them. He might just, just protect the child or, or just hold up his hands even like, you know, don't do that or he grab the child if they're going across the street. His, his parenting will use that kind of strategy. But as the child moves through life, a parent can give more and more detailed sort of rules and instructions, right? And maybe when the child is, is old enough to really understand and take it in, a parent might say, look, here are, here are six things that you ought to do every day, you know? Here are, here are seven things you should avoid every day. But that wouldn't make sense to a two-year-old or a three-year-old, but it might make sense to a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. Okay, so think now of the human race going from Adam and Eve all the way to Moses. That's a long period. And God, we could say, was steadily educating the human race until they were ready at the time of Moses to receive these more detailed commandments. So that's what St. Irenaeus said. And it's, it's, he, was, he was motivated by the very same question that you just asked. Well, wonderful questions to yeah, all of our good. young boys and girls who sent them in. If you're a parent and you'd like your kids to ask some questions of Bishop Barron, visit the website askbishopbarron.com, askbishopbarron.com. There's a place where you can record your question if you're a parent or your children's questions. And every now and then we love doing these kids Q&A wrap-up episodes. I also wanted to remind you, uh, as we did at the beginning of the episode, to pick up your copy of Dr. Holly Ordway's new book, the first book published by Word on Fire Academic. It's titled Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. If you're a fan of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and you're curious how Tolkien came up with these characters in this whole world, Holly traces a lot of the surprising sources that contributed to it, including contemporary fairy tales, science fiction, um, even poets and, and American writers. Um, so pick it up. It's a fascinating study, Tolkien's Modern Reading. You can find it at wordonfire.org slash Tolkien. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.